This podcast contains a light-hearted discussion of international foods where we will likely pronounce words incorrectly, get some facts wrong, be politically incorrect at times, and accidentally offend people through cultural stereotypes. If you can handle all that with good humor, then grab a drink and let's do this. Welcome to The Dish, the show that uncovers the stories behind the world's most famous dishes. We are your hosts, Tomo and Megzi from foodfuntravel.com. Join us and expert guests for tasty facts, foodie secrets, and more. In this episode, we explore the stories behind some of our favorite dishes from Seoul, South Korea. We ask, why are they sending one of Korea's national dishes, kimchi, into space? They actually sent it up into space on a multi-million dollar research effort to actually see if they could kill the bacteria that creates the odor, but they didn't want to affect the taste. I guess if you put anything in the vacuum of space, you can't smell it. So maybe that was the goal. They're just like, let's send all the kimchi into space, let it ferment, then bring it back down to earth when it's ready to go. Whose dish is it anyway? The story of fried chicken in South Korea. All right, let's talk about chicken and beer. What's going on with this? Oh my goodness. I fell in love with the fried chicken in Korea. Uh, They call it KFC, Korean fried chicken. (laughs) (laughs) All all rights reserved there. Trademark pending. And Tomo tries a dish that's having second thoughts about being eaten. I stuck a chopstick onto the plate and one of the octopus tentacles clung to the chopstick and started moving up the chopstick. And I was like, are you sure this is dead? You say it's dead, you're telling me now it's dead, even after research it's dead, but it seemed to be coming for me. It was pissed. (laughs) It was pissed. Hey everyone, we are back for another What to Eat In episode, and today we are talking about the capital of South Korea. It's Seoul. Yes, Seoul is one of our all-time favorite foodie cities. I think we're probably going to say that a lot in this series, to tell you the truth. Except each foodie city that we love, we love it for a different reason. And I would say the reason we love Seoul is it's like a low-carb paradise. I ate myself stupid. Stupid in Seoul, and I swear I didn't put on any weight. Yeah, tons of meat, seafood, vegetables, and sure, there's rice going on, but, I mean, rice is probably the healthiest of all the carbs. Rice is a side. Like, it's a choice. It's not, like, the bulk of the dish. It comes in a little metal tray thing on the side, and you're like, do I want that? Yeah, I probably do, but... It's not like the heavy bulk of the di- of the meal. And that's a fun fact. And we'll probably talk about this as we go through. But when you eat in Seoul, if you are still hungry at the end of your meal, they'll bring you a bowl of rice. So it's like you don't get the bowl of rice at the start. It's not like Europe where they bring you a massive plate of bread at the start and then you're already stuffed before the main course turns up. It's the opposite way around. They bring you lots of little things, little vegetable sides, then the main course. And then if you're still hungry, they bring rice out right at the end of the meal. I mean, it depends where you eat. It depends what you eat. But that just seemed to be a thing with certain restaurants. The rice was like the slightly later on. Still hungry? All right, here's yeah. loads of rice. One of the only countries we've been to where rice is sort of an afterthought. Yeah, but they still love rice and there's still dishes with rice in that we'll be talking about today. There's some very famous Korean dishes with rice in that we'll be talking about for sure. All right, but before we get into the hardcore of it, let's do a couple of specifics about Korean food, Korea, things we want to let people know. Before we get into the specific, let's do some general. 
That's the idea, really. That's what I was trying Rather to say. Rather than getting into specifics by getting into specifics. These are the non-specifics. Here's some basic stuff, because uh, a lot of people listening to this have probably never been to Korea. Maybe you've eaten Korean food at home. It's definitely getting popular in Australia. Um, mm-hmm. and the US, of course. US, definitely. Canada, Canada, Canada Vancouver. Huge. Oh, massive believe. scene. How about UK? What do you know? What do Not you know about- so much. In fact, I'd say Korean food is something my dad hasn't eaten. Who would have thought? Who would have thought it? I'm pretty sure he hasn't eaten Korean food. Ever. Ian, you'll have to let us know. I think, though, there might be more Korean food appearing in England, probably in London, but I haven't been living in England recently. Why would I? So, you know. It is definitely spreading in popularity, but if you haven't had the opportunity to visit Korea or have Korean food, here's a few little things we wanted to let you know before we started the podcast. Yeah, there's a bit of lay of the land with Korea. Now, the position of the country means they do have very long, cold winters. They get lots of snow in Seoul in the wintertime. It's freezing. It gets to like minus 15 Celsius. No, thank you. Don't know what that is in freedom units, but that's very, very cold. Yeah. So because of these long winter months, uh, pickling of vegetables was essential. So you would, of course, have heard of kimchi, one of the most famous Korean pickled vegetables. Uh, There's also radishes, other things that they pickle. It's very, very prevalent in today's Korean cuisine as well. But even now today with other types of food available, imports, etc., it's just it's become a part of the food culture to eat these pickled foods. And it's really an essential part of Korean cuisine to have those flavors in it. So not surprisingly, they are present everywhere. Yeah. One thing I found really interesting in doing a bit of research on Korea was that actually originally it was Buddhist, but like the longest part of its history, which I had no idea about, which essentially meant that meat was really not part of the cuisine. And this all changed with the Mongol invasion in the 13th century. Knock, knock, knock. Hello, it's the Mongols. And uh, they came by in the 13th century and were like, ah, you don't eat meat. You should eat meat. Meat's good. Have this. It's yum times. And of course, it's become pretty popular in Korea since then. Uh, there's lots of meat on the menu now. Yeah. So it, it's insanely part of the cuisine. But also, of course, they still like to include those uh, those vegetables as well. And of course, not just meat, but they also really like their seafood. Uh, it's a massive part of the Korean cuisine, especially live seafood markets. It's just a whole other world because everything is in buckets and in in uh, fish tanks, all kept alive, ready to be like, I will have that one, please. I will have that one. I will call him Fred. Fred is dead. That's his name. Dead Fred dead the fish. Dead Fred the fish. Yeah. Freddy Fishy Dead Freddy. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's completely different from what we've had in Australia, what you have in England, where the fish is already killed on the boat, thrown on some ice, and then brought back to land. The fish is all brought in alive, and it's stored in tanks, and you go in a point and say, he's swimming pretty good. He's got a strong fin on him. Let's yeah, let's take him out. Yeah, I dare say I kind of almost prefer this way of seafood markets. Yeah. It just makes everything so much fresher. You know how long the use-by date really is on it. Because <laughs> it's alive. Yep. Uh, and then you just, you know, use it that day. It's one of those things. It gets killed that day. You eat it that day. Done. In fact, with the seafood markets, it gets killed that minute, and you eat it 15 minutes later. It's super fresh. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about that further on in the podcast. So yeah, that's the main stuff. Yeah, meat and seafood, especially now. We're going to talk about the history of meat a little bit more later as well. And the vegetable side of Korea is definitely still strong. It's still going on, but people are reveling in the ability to eat meat these days. Definitely. All right. 
a few very important ingredients before we get onto dishes. In fact, it's actually very few important ingredients because although they've got lots of meats and fruits and vegetables and stuff in Korea. I guess most of them won't be a huge surprise. So we're just going to cover a couple of ingredients that really make you taste something as Korean. Lightning round! All right, let's do it. Bean paste doenjang. It means thick sauce. Doenjang is a fermented soybean paste which is made only of soybeans and brine. That's it. Yep, earlier soybean fermentations date back as far as 57 BC, uh, perhaps even earlier. Damn. Okay, and doenjang can be eaten as a condiment as a, in the raw paste form. Yum. You can just pull it straight out the pot and there we go. Yum. Put it on some vegetables. Yum. Uh, or you can use it as a flavored seasoning uh, to mix into dishes or even just as something you mix up with a couple of other ingredients to dip as a condiment. Yum. Uh, however, it is more commonly mixed with garlic, sesame oil, and sometimes gochujang. To produce samjag. This is eaten wrapped in lettuce and often with rice. If you have seen this, you know what I'm talking about. If not, I'm so sorry. I just obliterated all of those words. We don't speak Korean, but I'm getting a sense here that the word jang means paste because literally everything has the word jang on the end. Because now we're going to talk about the next one, chili paste, which is gochujang, which we just mentioned is something you can mix with the soybean paste to make up a, like a double spicy soybean paste. Yeah, so gochujang's primary ingredients are red chili powder, which is made up of Korean chili peppers that are spicy yet sweet, glutinous rice powder, powdered fermented soybeans, and salt. Doesn't that sound yum? <laughs> <laughs> but once you put it together, it is actually It actually really, really awesome. is. It's commonly been assumed that spicy jang, spicy paste varieties, were made using black peppers before chilies came to South Korea. Because, of course, there were no chilies going on in South Korea until they appeared from the Americas. Yes, chili peppers originated in the Americas and were introduced to East Asia by Portuguese traders in the early 16th century. And actually, the first mention of chili peppers ever in Korea is in a collected essay of Jibong, uh, which is an encyclopedia that was published in 1614. Our first dish today is both an ingredient, a condiment, a side, and a dish. It's one of Korea's most famous foods, kimchi. The ultimate Korean traditional dish, which is made from salted and fermented vegetables, which is most commonly the Napa cabbage and uh, Korean radishes. Is the Napa cabbage from... California, or is that just no, I, a confusing I, I, name? I think it's a confusing name. I don't think it, no. It's like, yes, in the Napa Valley, we create wine and cabbages. Which we send to Korea so they can make kimchi. Yeah, exactly. No, well, I, people who live in California, Korean immigrants must love the fact that they've got access to their home cabbages. Exactly. I, <laughs> no, I don't think it's got anything who knows? to do with this that. This isn't really an incredibly factual show. It's, it's like 70% factual, 30% guesswork. That's sort of how it works. Yeah. We're on the entertainment side of things. Maybe we should just double check about the Napa cabbage, though. Time for Google to save the day once again. We'll be back. So, yes, Napa cabbage actually isn't from the Napa Valley in California at all. <laughs> I thought it would have had some nice fruity tones and hints of cherry and chocolate. <laughs> nope. Actually, uh, Napa cabbage is a type of Chinese cabbage originating around the Beijing area of China. It's widely used in all East Asian cuisine, and since the 20th century, it is also now a widespread crop across Europe, America, and Australia. So maybe it is now in California, and maybe they're going, this is our cabbage, isn't it? They just stole it and went, well, it's already called this. We could just say it's our cabbage. Yeah, why not? Just roll with it. 
The interesting thing with kimchi is that it was stored in these big underground jars uh, to keep it cool, which was interesting because Korea is cold anyway, so they needed to keep it like crazy cold. But in the summer. Yeah, that's true. It does get hot in the summer. And uh, it ferments for a long time, right? So that's why it couldn't just be fermented in a couple of months. This is like a year. No, or... it's one of those things where like, it's like you have a kimchi making day with your family and everyone would go out and you'd do all the preparation. It's kind of like what the Italians do with the making of the tomato sauce. And so you have that day where you go and you prep everything and you mix it all together and you do everything as a family. And then with this, you know, you bury it underground and then you wait for it to be ready. And then you have other jars from previous years that are ready to go and it's just this continuous process so you always have kimchi available um, by doing it on this yearly um family sort of project and it apparently is, the underground thing it's not just about keeping it cool it's actually about stopping it getting too cold by being underground it didn't freeze so although above ground it was snowing it would stop it from freezing because that's apparently how science works so it was this crazy underground uh, standardized temperature exactly. just like being in a cave it's like the same temperature all year round sort of business just bury it underground and it'll never get that cold these days there are some people that still bury it underground but apparently most people are using uh, what they just call a kimchi fridge if anyone has encountered a kimchi a kimchi refrigerator they will tell you straight up it stinks I'd rather have a wine fridge to be honest who wouldn't uh, I can just get I kimchi from me. a supermarket I love me with some kimchi, but I don't want a kimchi fridge in the house if it's if it be stinking up stuff. So you know, pick it pick it up from the store, do what you got to do. But if you're hardcore and you want to make it the same way that your grandma made it all those years ago, if you happen to be Korean, you might want to have a kimchi fridge, but you might not have any friends. I feel like they Korea might not want to come around for dinner. I reckon Korean people won't be listening to this episode, so. <laughs> we, we, Tomo says as we get an onslaught yeah. of emails You got this wrong, my grandma never buried the kimchi Stop saying what my grandma does, you don't know my grandma If we're offending everyone, please email Megzi at foodfuntravel.com And this will be part of our corrections section We'll do a whole podcast on corrections of everything we got wrong Except for pronunciation of dishes because we will never get that right I'm Actually, sorry. if we're offending people, don't email us because you know, we're not purposely doing it I'm, yeah. It's by We're accident. sorry, we don't mean it. All right, back to kimchi. Early records of kimchi do not mention the addition of garlic or chili. Well, not surprisingly, because they didn't have any chili in very early records. No. But garlic is something, I guess it's it's not crazy garlicky. When you eat kimchi, you don't instantly I go, oh my garlic. God, it's garlic. Uh, you sort of just eat it and go, yep, it's cabbage and it's a little bit spicy and it's a little bit sour because it's been fermented with some acid, you know, yeah. Yeah, that's yep. about it. So why not? Um, but obviously now people do put the garlic in and the chili has become a hugely essential ingredient. I mean, what was the last time you had kimchi that wasn't spicy? Oh, never. I mean, just ask my dad. He's he's never had never. kimchi that wasn't spicy or kimchi. He's never so, had kimchi. you know, that's um, important. But the original kimchi was about 37 BC to perhaps 7 AD, around about that time. Oh, Anno Domini. So this links us back to the, the, the common era. So now you see after the BJ... Um, mm -hmm. after the, the birth of Jesus, we went into the common era now. It's just called CE. It's not called AD, Anno Domini. You know what? I have seen CE being mentioned like in some museums and stuff yeah. like that, and I was like, I don't know what that means. Yeah, you thought it was like courgette ejection or something, but actually it's not. It was just cheese era. Cheese era? Yeah, it's when people oh. really got into cheese. Oh, it's true, actually. Cheese has become more successful in the last 2,000 years. Yeah. I feel like after Jesus died, cheese just became way more popular. Tights. He doesn't really talk about cheese or, in the Bible. from what we keep talking about in these episodes, obviously, chili. 
Chile, definitely, yeah, the, the Chile era. Bada boom, took over the world. But it still took like 1,600 years from uh, the old BC ending to the Chile arriving in all of the rest of the world. So we're going to stick America. with cheese? I think it's probably more of a cheese era. Or maybe, but, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Yeah, sure. All right, cheese okay, era done. from now on. Okay, so the dates were 37 BJ to around 7 CE, somewhere between birth of Jesus and, you know, Cheese era. So this is some pretty old history of making this particular dish. You know, a lot of things we talk about in this podcast is how interesting it is that these national dishes are actually quite modern, more modern than we actually think they are. Most of them like sort of come out in like the 1900s and, and that sort of stuff. But actually, this is truly old. And it is actually the national dish of both North and South Korea. I'm sure at the time it was just Korea. It would have been of Korea. I don't know a lot about um, current North Korean cuisine, and I probably should look into that to tell you the truth. But it is something that is apparently very popular in both North and South because it used to just be Korea. But apparently the whole chili thing, even though they might have got chilies a little bit earlier on, didn't really happen until the 19th century. That's when it sort of became a thing. Someone threw some chili in and went, oh, that's good. damn, this cabbage is a lot less cabbagey and a lot spicier. This is way more fun. And here's an interesting fact on how much the South Koreans love their kimchi. Apparently, during the Vietnam War, the government of South Korea requested America's help to keep up the morale of the South Korean troops that were in Vietnam because they didn't have access to kimchi. And they asked America to send it out to them on the fields so that the Korean soldiers would keep up the morale and actually be happy. Uh, Well, no one's ever happy fighting a war. I think pretty much the Koreans were ready to pack up and leave if they didn't get access to kimchi while out on the battlefields. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I've met quite a few Koreans and kimchi is a part of their soul. It is essential. I haven't met a Korean who actually said, I hate, I hate kimchi. I never want to eat kimchi again. I'm sure there is a Korean out there. And if you want to tweet us at Food Fun Travel, then doesn't let us like know. kimchi. If you don't like kimchi and you're Korean, please tweet us and say, I hate kimchi. I'm Korean. I just, I'm looking for that tweet. It'll only happen once or never, but please do it. That'll be very random. And final crazy facts on kimchi before we get onto the dishes of South Korea. Kimchi went to space. It did! You know how we were saying before about how crazy stinky the kimchi fridges are? They actually sent it up into space on a multi-million dollar research effort to actually see if they could kill the bacteria that creates the odor, but they didn't want to affect the taste. So that for some reason they thought sending it up into space they would be able to get rid of the stink, but keep the flavor. I don't know if it was successful. I'm guessing it's not because kimchi still stinks. <laughs> yeah. That Well, the fermentation process stinks. The finished product doesn't really smell that bad at all. No. But, I mean, I guess if you put anything in the vacuum of space, you can't smell it. So maybe that was the goal. They're just like, let's send all the kimchi into space, let it ferment, then bring it back down to earth when it's ready to go. Yeah. It's a bit of an expensive way to do it. You could probably just put it inside a closed room or something. But Oh, but then you, you, know. you open that room. Dang. I don't want to be that person to open that room. All right, let's talk about Korean dishes. Now, this is probably going to be one of the most famous ones that you might have tried. My dad hasn't. Bibimbap. Yes, bibimbap literally means mixed rice, which makes sense where if you've ever had the dish. Because it is. It's rice that is just in the bottom of the bowl, and then they put loads of different toppings on top of it. So, yeah, maybe they throw some kimchi on. Maybe they throw some slices of beef 
there's pretty much always a raw fried egg, well, a raw or a fried egg on top as well. And then you can just like mash that up. They throw on different vegetables. Maybe you get some mung beans thrown on there. Uh, sesame seeds almost certainly are going to be happening. It's just, yeah, it's mixed rice. It's a mix of everything. But unlike all the rest of the mixed rice in the Asian sphere, which all seems to be fried rice mixed with a few vegetables, a bit of chicken or something, the Korean mixed rice is not fried. It's just that the bowl gets really hot. The bottom of the rice sometimes gets a little bit crisped up whilst it's being heated up. Uh, and then you just mix everything together. It's a bit of a fresher, healthier rice. Yeah, I think in most places you'll find that mixed rice is actually mixed for you. But with bibimbap, you mix it yourself. Yeah comes to the table with every single one of those ingredients on top of that rice separated. And it's normally in a like a big silvery bowl. I mean, I'm sure lots of places serve it differently. Um, interestingly enough, in 2017, Bip and was listed as the number 40 uh, world's 50 most delicious foods, uh, which was compiled by CNN. Um, I would take this poll with a grain of salt because I also saw them mention ketchup one time as one of the top foods in the world, top 50 foods. Plus they change their mind every year on a lot of things, yeah. which makes me go, well, have, has the whole world changed their mind every year? It's apparently voted by the public, but come on. I'm not taking in a poll that lists ketchup and potato chips as the world's 50 most delicious foods. I love me some potato chips, but really? You couldn't come up? with 50 that didn't include ketchup and potato chips? Yeah, you'd think there were 50 better dishes than potato chips. Yeah. Sort of weird. Still, we'll keep mentioning it because it makes us sound popular if we're, we're referencing CNN, apparently. That's how <laughs> mainstream media works. They can feel free to give us a link back to our podcast anytime. Yeah, as mentioned in the Dish podcast. Yeah. All right, back to Bippenbap. So the name Bippenbap was actually adopted in the early 20th century. That's the cheese era. The cheese area, yes. Uh, before that, it was known as goldongban, uh, which means rice made by mixing. You know, sort of the same thing, really. It's kind of the same, but they decided to change it for some reason. It could have been like a uh, like a change of emperor or whoever was in charge, and they're like, I don't want it to be called that anymore. I want it to be called this. I really don't know that. I'm just hypothesizing. Oh, we're just making stuff up now. Yeah, but Don't that, worry about and, it. you know, sometimes things like that happen. So the dish was actually traditionally eaten on the eve of the Lunar New Year, as uh, the people at that time felt that they had to get rid of all the leftover side dishes before the New Year came about. Uh, the main solution to this problem was to put all the leftovers into a bowl, mix it with rice, because of rice is a very important part of a Korean meal, and then mix them all together and get rid of it. So it's, it's, a left, it's the ultimate Korean leftovers meal. Yeah, it's the leftovers meal that's become like world-renowned Yeah, for being a really good use of leftovers. It's also thought to have been eaten by farmers during farming season just because it was like the easiest way for anyone to make food for a large number of people. I mean, you've got a ton of bowls in front of you, throw some rice in, throw whatever the hell you got in the kitchen on top, egg on top perhaps as well. There you go. Get it done. But even though it was fed to farmers, it also was known as being popular uh, for the kings as well. And the kings would usually have it as a lunch or between meal snacks. So of course, because kings much... ate a lot more than farmers. So, you know, they're like, hey, for my seventh meal of the day, yes, I might have a, a quick bibimbap, please. Yeah. So it is actually a dish that has been eaten from royalty all the way through to peasants. It's and an everyone everyman dish. It is. Because it's damn good. Okay. All right. That's bibimbap. Let's move on to the next one. This one is fire meat. <laughs> Which uh, you might know as bulgogi. So bol means fire and gogi means meat. Fire meat. And they put the meat on fire to make it 
And that's why it's awesome. I mean, you can't really go wrong with something where you just put meat on fire. Absolutely not. And this is one of uh, Tomo's favorite things. They take Mm -hmm. thin slices of meat that have been marinated, so maybe like beef or pork, and then they grill it on a barbecue until it's nice and juicy. On the barbecue is the best, but they also do it on like a stovetop or a griddle. Yes. So, yeah, you can get it anyway. If you put it on the stovetop, the juices sort of stay in a bit more. If you put it on the barbecue, it just gets those flavors from the barbecue, gets the charcoal flavor, and I feel it makes it tastier. Even though you lose a bit of the juice out of the meat, I think it's better. So, bulgogi is believed to have originated between 37 BC and 668 CE. Cheese era. Cheese era. And then it was originally called makejok. And that is where the beef was actually grilled on a skewer. So it's kind of had a little bit of a transition throughout the years. But it mostly is just the similar sort of marinated beef cooked. Yeah. In a tasty way. Exactly. It's fire meat. Yeah. Pretty awesome. So during the Joseon dynasty, 1392 to 1897... It had a different name as well. So everything's like the names keep changing. I mean, the That's Korean, what I said. It's a different dynasty and they're like, I will now call it this. New names. But the Korean language has changed quite a lot over the years. True. The modern alphabet of Korea is different. We don't know the whole history of that. And this is a food show. So we're just going to talk about the food bits. But Niobiani was the previous name, which sounds almost Italian. But it just if meant... You say it that way, it does. Niobiani. I don't think that's how it's that's said. That's not how it's said no. at all. But it was, uh, that word means thinly spread. And of course, this is the thing about bulgogi is it is very thin slices of meat. You can cook them very quickly. They marinate really nicely because obviously all the marinade gets right up in there in your meat. And during that era, it was very popular for the wealthy and nobility to eat that style of beef. Because of course, beef has always been something that's been a little bit for the wealthier classes. And one of the interesting things we found, not just with this dish, but with other dishes as well, is a lot of the ethnic origination, of, if that's even a word, which it's not, of some of these dishes is from North Korea. And of course, because the peninsula was one whole country before, we sort of forget that actually a lot of the stuff was going on in the North. And it seems like at least the word for bulgogi, or at least that word at that time, that older word, niobiani, was <laughs> uh, from the... The, the North Korean area from near the capital, the, the Pyongan district. Yeah, and it only really became popular in Seoul, uh, surprisingly enough, after 1945. So before then, it was really in that uh, North Korea area. And then after the uh, Koreans were liberated from the Japanese armed forces in 1945, it became really popular in Seoul with the refugees from the North Korea region of Pyongyang. Yeah, so I mean, there's a little bit of history for you there if you didn't know Japan occupied oh, many South Korea times. many, many times. times. But the last time was uh, after the Second World War when they eventually left. So yeah, they brought it down to Seoul. People were only really eating it in the north before. And now it's like a huge dish, internationally famous and definitely one of my favorites. And it's beefy, tasty, awesome. Mm. Speaking of barbecued meats. Mm-hmm. All right. There's a lot. I mean, as we said, that's one of the best things about Korea. It's just lots barbecue of barbecue. Barbecue is what they do. All right, so barbecue is also, so if you want to talk about it in Korean, you'd say gogigui, gogigui, gogigui. I reckon, gogigui. I'm so sorry, Korea. So this actually refers to the popular method of Korean cuisine, which is just grilling meat. So that's how you would call grilled meat. I feel like they can't claim they invented grilling meat, but I'm glad they have No, that's just their name for it. And they do it very well. That's their name for it. Yeah. Uh, But they also do it differently because, as we said before, they marinate it in different uh, spices and in different pastes than what is done anywhere else. So 
one thing we found from traveling around the world is that most countries, actually their most popular form of cooking is barbecue. Everyone lays claim to barbecue. They're like, oh, but like Australia, what do you do best? Oh, we do barbecue. America, what do we do? Oh, we barbecue. Oh, um, China, what do we do? Well, we barbecue. Korea, they barbecue as well. Bangkok. It's one of the oldest forms of cooking. Everybody barbecues. And so it's- Meat plus heat equals yum. Exactly. That's, that's how it works. So, you know, everyone's got their own form, but as you said, they do it their own way because they add those amazing spices and the marinades. They marinate meat like with bulgogi, they marinate it in fruit. So they use pears, the traditional fruit. They mash up the pear, very small, blend it up. And so the, the pear actually helps break down the meat, the acid from the pear. Uh, also, one of the things that I find really cool, you will find that you will be served the meat raw because in the middle of the table that you'll be sitting at will be a big ass charcoal grill. Oh, I love that. I love it. I feel like with restaurants where they just bring you a finished dish and you eat it in a space of five minutes and then you're like, great, finished eating. What are we going to do now? Sort of dessert. Definitely a Korean barbecue meal is a really interactive experience. They give you a tray, like like a roll-up cart with that has an assortment of things on it. And you'll have everything from like scissors to cut the meat up because you get a whole big slice of meat and you're meant to cook it for a bit, but then you're meant to chop it up with the scissors. And if you don't do it in time, someone will come in and they'll chop that up for you. Like like your mum cooking, ch- cutting up <laughs> your meat for you. Sorry, foreigner, you've gone too far. Exactly. It's time to chop. Yeah, mum will come in and she'll cut up your, your meal. They have lettuce, they have chili, they have garlic, they have kimchi, they have different things all on the side that every single restaurant makes a selection of sides and although you have those standards like kimchi you also have just their personal side that they make some places you go to you'll even get things like little mini sardines in a flavored spicy sauce you'll get potatoes with honey on we went to one place that had the grill on the inside and around the outside was this trough and they poured egg mixture into it and it would cook like this omelette egg around the outside that was delicious yeah so all the heat being used to cook up the meat in the middle is just making this sort of ring of omelet around the outside which is fantastic that restaurant was actually in bangkok it was in so it's not a seoul one but we're going to recommend our favorite barbecue place in seoul once we finish talking about this little section so another thing that's really popular uh, so of course you do have your beef that goes on to the barbecue but one of our favorite things is the pork belly or samgyeopsal it's almost certainly not that but it is pork belly and uh, of course you've got those lean layers with the fatty layers and actually that word that we can't pronounce means three layer flesh because it's got the meat the fat the meat sort of layer at the bottom and and then more fat i feel like there's more than three layers in the average bit of pork belly so yeah thick fatty slices of pork belly are grilled and generally when it's pork belly they do it on a slanted metal griddle so this is different to your general charcoal barbecue you get with your beef this is actually a metal griddle that'll be i don't know i don't know what degrees like a few a few degrees on an it's on an angle so the oil runs down exactly and at the bottom so you put all of the pork belly at the top and then at the bottom you put a mixture of vegetables so the vegetables are cooking the pork's cooking and all of that dirty delicious fat is running down and caramelizing the vegetables at the bottom Mm -hmm. holy yum batman yeah if you've never had it like this you've never had it it's so good We've seen different contraptions being used to do this. Sometimes it's sort of like a dome-shaped grill where you put 
the little bits of pork around the outside of the dome and the fat drips down to the bottom and then slowly drips away down a little, little escape hatch. But you can throw some vegetables in that those gaps so that they run through it first and they cook. I mean, any way that it happens, the fact is you're eating some pork fatty vegetables. Yep. And the interesting thing is this meat is not marinated, nor is it seasoned. It is just straight up pork belly deliciousness put on there, cooked as it is. And then what you do is you grab your leaves, you grab your pickled vegetables, which will be like your kimchi and your radishes and your mung beans, and you wrap them up in the lettuce leaf like a little parcel. Uh, with, of course, your bean paste, which mm. is amazing. Bit of sesame oil as well, maybe. Bit of salt. Yep. Mm. And then you shove it all in your mouth in one mouthful. And it's always too much. Always. But it is apparently meant to be eaten in one mouthful. It's not a first date meal. And so our favorite restaurant for this is in Itaewon, which is it's a slightly more expat area of Seoul, but this restaurant just nailed it. And we ate barbecue all around the country while we were there, and this is the one we always go back to. Uh, so we posted the name of that on the show notes, as well as a dirty, dirty photo of that pork belly griddle. And you can grab the show notes from foodfuntravel.com slash podcast. Now, of course, we can't talk about dirty, dirty Korean barbecue without talking about the drink that goes with it. That Drink is, of course, alcoholic. <laughs> of course. When we say drink, we mean alcohol. Yeah. Otherwise, we'd say... This is not a light juice on the side. Non-alcoholic beverage. A lemonade. This is soju. And soju is something that will just knock your socks off. Wowza. So it is a clear, colorless, distilled drink that actually is of Korean origin. Like, I don't know anyone else who makes soju. It just, it's Korean through and through. And soju actually literally means burned liquor. So this sort of refers to the distilling process. So actually like it's broken down into the, the letters, the Korean letters. So the first letters mean burn, which is referring to the, dis, uh, the heat of the distillation. And then the second letters are referring to alcoholic drinks. So it's like burned liquor. There you go. Easy. And you drink this stuff straight up neat. Oh, straight up. There's no ice. There's no nothing. Uh, sometimes it comes a little chilled, but it's pretty much just, here you go. You got some strong liquor on the side. It uh, is best to sip it. Yeah, it's a sip and drink. We're not taking shots of this while we're trying to eat our food. You're sipping a little bit of this, of the soju, having a little bit of meat, a little bit of lettuce with all the other flavors. And the alcohol content can vary between about 16.8% and 53% for the extreme ones. But, I mean, we typically found when we're in a restaurant, maybe it's about 23%. These aren't insane, no, but they are still strong. When you drink it, you go, woo, woo it's alcohol. Hello, boys. Even though it's not, like, crazy strong. You can get crazy strong ones, but your regular one you're buying in a normal restaurant is not that really, insane. Really, 53% is your homemade hooch, isn't it? Obviously, you someone out so. there is brewing up some super dangerous stuff. Yeah. Uh, it is traditionally made from rice, wheat, or barley, but apparently these days uh, a lot of them are replacing rice with other starches like potatoes, sweet potatoes, and tapioca because it's just kind of cheaper, yeah. which is lame. Stick with the traditional. So the origin of soju actually goes back to the 13th century, and that's... Yeah, it's cool. They've been drinking this booze for ages. Yeah. Not as long as wine, but it, you know, this has been going on for a long time. Yeah, they actually got the technique when the Mongols invaded uh, Korea, and uh, that's where they learned the art of distilling alcohol. Which that, you know, we believe, history believes, not us, because we don't really believe anything. We don't know anything. We just read things. Historians believe that this distilling technique was brought over from the Persians, where they make arak, 
you may have had Arak if you've been to that part of the world, which is another very strong hooch like it makes clear you go, spirit. Yeah, you go, oh my. And so that technique was probably brought by the Mongols in the 13th century. But in some way, during that time, the locals were taught how to make super strong booze. And so they went, well, what have we got? We got rice. All right, let's turn that into soju. Yep, they turned it into their own thing. And they have actually turned it into the largest selling spirit in the world. And they have held that title for more than a decade, which is insane. I actually double and triple checked this because when I looked it up and saw that soju was the biggest selling spirit, I was like, no. Can't be true because most people don't even know what it is. Exactly. My dad's never had it. (laughs) No. Exactly. So, yeah, I had to double check it, but it is actually true. They sell well over 65 million nine liter cases. That's what they sold in, well, 2000. In one year. In in one year. Yeah. The closest to that. So, okay. Let's repeat this again. 65 million times nine. Yes. That's like 600 million. The closest to that was ABD's Officer Choice Whiskey, which came in at 32.3 million cases. And after that, there is actually a Thai beverage called Rang Kao, which I've never tried, interestingly enough. Uh, But that came in at 31.2 million cases. Soju did 65 million nine-liter cases. It's insane. People are just knocking that back. It's what you drink with pretty much every meal, unless you're drinking Macaulay. And we're going to get into Macaulay in a little bit. Now, we said that rice wasn't the, the everywhere dish. We weren't eating rice constantly while we're in Seoul. But aside from barbecue, which we're eating a lot because barbecue is great and there's so many different meats and it's, it's so fresh when you're eating all the different vegetables as well. We are going to talk about another rice dish that we did eat quite often. It is kimbap. Or gimbap. There's a couple of different references to the way that it's actually pronounced. And this has something to do with also like Japanese influence on the dish as well. So it is a Korean dish. Well, um, there's some controversy oh, about there this. Oh, there is. There's always controversy. Because the reason it's considered to be like a Japanese dish is because it looks like sushi. It is cooked rice with some stuff in the middle, which varies from different ingredients from spam. We'll talk about spam later. Spam in Korea? Yeah, we'll be talking about that. Spam, sometimes they have a sort of radish in there as well. Sometimes egg, Mm -hmm. like a scrambled type egg will be in there. And that's rolled up. And then you have the nori around the outside, although it's got a different name. Yeah, it's very, very similar. Some sources say that it was derived from norimaki, which is, of course, a Japanese sushi. And they say that this was introduced to Korea during Japanese occupation. Other sources say that it was a food that was just naturally developed from the local tradition of rolling bap, which is cooked rice. And you'll find in a lot of households that many Koreans will have just like little squares of the seaweed sheets and then they'll have rice on the side and they'll get the seaweed sheet and they'll just pick up a bunch of rice and put some radishes on it or some vegetables and then they'll just pop it straight into their mouth. Now, obviously, gimbap is a little bit more of a refined version because it's actually rolled. But some people think that this, you know, age old tradition of just grabbing rice into a seaweed sheet is where it all began. Yeah. And of course, you're putting that filling in the middle. And in Korea, they've got so many different side dishes, which are called banchan. You get side dishes with pretty much any meal. If you go to a sit-down restaurant rather than ordering street food or something, they're going to bring out a bunch of side dishes for you as well as like your your main course. So if you don't order a specific item but you order a, a sit-down meal, uh, it's like a it's an everything meal. 
they just bring out all the bits and you get like 20 different side plates and like the dish of the day. It's like, it's like the menu del dia that you get in, in Spain, in Mexico. It's like the menu of the day. If you sit down, they bring out everything. So possibly they had a bunch of side dishes left over. Obviously they got rice left over and they went, all right, throw some of those bits of side dish in the middle of some rice, roll it up. And there's your gimbap. The reason why it gets really confusing with the history of it is because actually the term gimbap wasn't used until about 1935 in a Korean newspaper article. Before that, the word that actually was used for it was norimaki. But this is purely because back in the time of the Japanese occupation, the Korean language was actually forbidden. So they had to use the word norimaki to refer to this thing that they were doing. But it doesn't necessarily mean that that is where it came from. So this is why it's a little bit contentious. You know, some people say it's got that Japanese influence and it was introduced by the Japanese. Some people say that it was always a Korean thing, but they just had to call it by the Japanese name for so long because of Japanese occupation and, you know, them not being able to use their own language. Do we know the answer? No, we don't. Oh, history. It's interesting though. But yeah, the two words have really been used interchangeably until gimbap was made the universal term, but now everybody just refers to it as gimbap. Okay, another dish that is definitely uh, world famous in a sense, but Korea has their own version of it, is mandu. Yes, if I get an opportunity to eat dumplings in any country, I am going to be shoving them in my face in large amounts. Yes, mandu are Korean dumplings. Uh, sometimes they're steamed, sometimes they're boiled, pan-fried or deep-fried. I mean, it's like whatever way you want it, let's yep. do it. Yep, mandu is thought to have been brought into, it's another thing that they think was brought in along that Silk Road. Did the Mongols bring it in? We don't know, but still, you know, there's a lot of names that are really quite similar to mandu along the Silk Road of Central Asia that, you know, it's really similar to that mandu sound. The Turkish called it manti, the Kazakhs called it manti as well. Uzbeks, manti, manti oh. Armenians, manti. Manti. Chinese mantu. It's really manti, but like all different inflections. So it kind of went manta, manti, 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 mantu, mandu. Probably. Etymologically speaking, that sounds like it makes sense. And the timeline sorts of, it sort of fits that they'd have been bringing food along the Silk Road and eventually those traditions were making it all the way into the Korean Peninsula. Of course, once again, with the Koreans originally being Buddhists, it was discouraged for them to eat meat, but the Mongolians went, go on, do it. And that's sort of one of the, another way that mandu became really popular and included meat on the inside of those tasty little dumplings. Mmm, meaty dumplings. So they do, of course, do mandu with different ingredients, though you don't just have to have meat. They have them stuffed with kimchi. Even mm, that's good. Yeah, they are really good. Of course, we're going to be talking a lot more about dumplings in a future episode, which is not out yet, but it will be in the, the distant future, because the history of dumplings is huge. It's gone all across Europe. I mean, when you look at Italy, they've got ravioli. Is that dumplings? Is it not dumplings? Is Ooh. it because of dumplings that they have ravioli? I mean, they probably say no, but that's what we're going to be investigating in a future episode of The Dish. Yeah. Because the history of dumplings is definitely an exciting story. And I like talking about dumplings. We talked about right at the start that seafood was an important part of a Korean diet. Of course, all that coastline going on. Now, one of the stranger things that I ate in Korea was live octopus. Yeah, I'm going to let Tomo take this one away because I did not touch this. <laughs> All right, tell us about your live octopus eating experience. So they have a dish called san nakji, 
which is effectively they take uh, an octopus that is alive. As we said, all of the fish markets, the seafood is typically alive and in some sort of aquatic space within the market. When I went to the market and had this, they literally did have a plastic tub and the guy used some sort of picky up device to just pull out an octopus, throw it in the tub and then showed it to me. He didn't speak English. He just showed me the octopus and went, and I was like, all right, okay, how much is that? He was like, oh, 10,000, which is like $10. And I was like, yeah. All right, let's eat that. What's going to happen with this exactly? I wasn't really sure at the time. I'd heard that there was like a, an octopus thing going on, but I actually didn't know back then. This was years ago. This was like 2009. I didn't know that it was actually a live octopus dish. I thought we were going to get octopus and they were just going to maybe fry it up quickly. So you ate this by accident. Well, yeah, pretty much. Because there's been a lot of like YouTube videos and stuff like that of people eating live octopuses. But obviously, 2009, this is way before YouTube and that whole phenomenon really took off. So you ordered live octopus by accident. Well, I ordered something that I knew what it was. I didn't know how they were going to make it and serve it, but I knew what it was. I was like, oh, that's an octopus. All right, I like octopus. I can eat that. Whereas the first, because like he didn't speak any English. So the first thing I was like, what can we eat? Let's eat something. This is crazy. We're walking around this seafood market. Let's just eat something. And the guy just pulled out a sea cucumber first. And I was like, no, no, no please. There's no way I'm going to eat that. That just, it looks so gross. I've never... You look hungry. Would you like a sea cucumber? He didn't know what we wanted. He was just like this. Not a sea cucumber. No. And then I think he pulled out a fish and he was like, that's 25,000. I was like, 25 bucks now? This is just a like morning snack. It was about 10 a.m. at this point. So this was breakfast. So I do want a whole fish. No. All right, small octopus, 10 bucks. All right, let's take this. This has got to work. And then he literally just slapped it down on a chopping board, chopped the head off, threw that away. This thing's wriggling around. And then he just chops up the tentacles into little pieces that are about half an inch long. And then he throws it on a plate, hands us some soy sauce and goes, away you go. And I was like, oh, he's not going to cook this. I apparently am just getting a plate of raw octopus. Uh, there is a video of this. We'll link that on the show notes as well. But essentially, um, we need to point out straight away that once they chop off its head, it is dead. It is this weird thing. Ish. No, it is dead. It's completely dead. Technically dead. But it's just the fact that the nerve activity in the octopus tentacles, it just keeps going afterwards. Like the animal is is dead, but for some, it's like it's like when you, I don't know, it's that weird thing when you chop the head off a chicken and it just runs around for ages. Like, yeah. It's the nerve ending still going. But typically you don't eat the chicken until a bit later. No, fair Whereas with this dish, it's still wriggling on the plate. Now it is actually something that is a really dangerous thing to eat and we need to do a disclaimer right here. Going and eating live octopus is something you need to chew like it the suckers have been known to cling to people's throats and choke them it is a dangerous thing to consume and uh, it's not something to be done lightly if you do decide to go and have this in south korea that said it is still a very popular dish and we're going to hear a little bit more about how that went down quite it, literally well it barely went down because it was trying to escape back up my throat every time i feel so this thing's wriggling around on the plate all these little tiny pieces of octopus tentacle. I stuck a chopstick onto the plate and one of the octopus tentacles clung to the chopstick and started moving up the chopstick. And I was like, are you sure this is dead? You say it's dead. You're telling me now it's dead. Even after research, it's dead. But it seemed to be coming for me. 
It was pissed. <laughs> it was pissed. I literally have got this thing on the video. You can see it. it's just it's hanging off the chopstick. It's sucking on. Is it like a zombie octopus? Yeah, pretty much. So yeah, I chewed the hell out of this because I, I mean, it was my first thought. This could try and escape my throat. This could be bad. I'm going to have to chew this to death because it obviously does not want to give up its existence. So yeah, that's what I did. Now I have to say, having had octopus all around the world cooked and ceviche, just plain raw octopus with a bit of soy sauce that's still wriggling is not good food. It's not your favorite way, huh? This is an adventure food. This is something, if you want to try something crazy, you can go to the main fish market in Seoul, wander around until you see some octopus in one of the tanks and just go, I want to eat that. All right. And so they'll serve it up. If you're wanting to try something for shits and giggles, this is probably something to give a go. But if you just want some tasty octopus, there's much better options out there. Yeah. Like in Spain. So. <laughs> How about in Seoul? <laughs> there probably are other places in Seoul to eat octopus. But uh, I remember eating prawns that were grilled up very, very nicely. I remember having sashimi. So we chose a fish from the market and they take it straight out, chop the head off and sashimi it right there. A little bit of that with a bit of wasabi, just cold. Amazing. One of the really interesting things about South Korean markets, and you'll find it in some other Asian markets as well, like in, in China and stuff like that, is they actually have restaurants out the back. Uh, so Or upstairs. Or upstairs. Who knows? They have restaurants. They have restaurants, so and they tend to be associated with some of the seafood sellers. So you can choose a fish. Tomo chose to have it as sashimi, and it was like I, that one. Freddie would die. Dead Freddie. Dead Freddie. They just literally like chopped the head off, and then they sliced it up into these thin slices of sashimi. And then they were like, "You can go upstairs." And there was someone who led us upstairs, and we sat down at this table. I ordered some prawns, and being Korea, we just sat down, and they brought out the massive amount of side dishes that you get just little pots of pickled ginger and of course your kimchi and some eggplant and some potatoes like it's just like a whole little mix of little taste tests you get on the side and then they bring up your dish to you and tom had the sashimi and i had the prawns and it was so fresh i know a lot of people turn up their noses at seafood because they're like oh but it tastes fishy if it's this fresh it will never ever taste fishy and this is the perfect way to have seafood yeah and pretty much the price they charge you is the price of the food the market person charges you the price and then the chef charges you like a set menu price which was maybe like six dollars or something like that yeah so yeah whatever they told you the price was plus the six dollars i mean it, it can be a bit more it depends which restaurant they take you to so do ask in advance when they're taking you to the restaurant because they might be like oh we'll take you to the fanciest one it'll be thirty dollars just to cook it so do ask them but normally it's just a few bucks for them to cook it up and you're paying for the produce not for the meal as such just a little supplement and yeah that's it so the seafood market in seoul is one of the biggest in south korea it is like a massive massive warehouse and they do have a load of restaurants around the sides of, uh, of that warehouse there's a few upstairs as well that you can find and so we'll leave notes on the show notes so that you can find out how to get there. Heading back to alcohol because... Which we do. We do. Also, Korea's got a pretty solid alcohol culture. And one of the other traditional drinks that they make that comes from Korea is makgeolli. And this is something that we've found really hard to get outside of Korea. And it's delicious. We miss it. You can find soju around the world in some places. But makgeolli, nah. -uh. Yeah, this is sort of... You know, before they had beer, this was their beer. It's not like beer. It's not beer at all. It traditionally is made from rice. 
and it's sort of like a milky beverage that has been fermented from rice. But it's like, you know, it's five or six percent, maybe a little bit stronger depending on which one you get. So it's sort of the equivalent of having a, a more easy drinking beverage rather than the soju we mentioned earlier, which is super strong, which you just sip on the side. This one, you can definitely enjoy it more. So uh, Korea has a long history of compound words and makali is one of my favorites actually. So the beginning is mak, which stands for roughly, reckless, careless. Goru, uh, to strain, to sift, to filter. Yeah, so actually, I mean, the middle of the word makali is not pronounced gyoru. Uh, they've sort of shortened the word a little bit. So they've taken part of that word, the, the gyo, magyoli. So it's like makyoli, but it's pronounced better than that because we can't pronounce stuff properly. Exactly. Yeah, it's careless straining because it sort of is like a dirty farmer's drink, isn't it? Oh, it's the best dirty farmer's drink. And it is the oldest alcoholic beverage in Korea, and it actually has been brewed since the Three Kingdoms era, and they were hanging around Korea from the 1st century BCE to 7th century CE. That's BJ to, to cheese era. To cheese, yes, Let's exactly. remember the proper, the proper wording for yeah, this one. Yeah, and the reason why we call it like a dirty farmer's drink is because it really is just the Korean version of homebrew. They were just brewing this up in the back of the house. You got some leftover rice, just let it ferment a bit, Yeah, brew it up. Anyone can make it. Exactly. It's just like fermented sort of rice wine. And actually, interestingly enough, it's had this resurgence um, and it's become really hip in some places, especially around Seoul. So you can go to certain places and they flavored it with different fruits and berries. So we went to one restaurant that had this makgeolli tasting. We had this delicious makgeolli flavored with tangerine, which is a popular choice on Jeju Island, which is off the coast of Korea. Also, there was some that was infused with blueberries and other berries with honey, just making these sort of hipster makgeolli drinks. Yeah, and it's creamy. Very creamy. When you think of rice wine, if you've had it in Thailand, it's sort of just a bit odd. I don't know, I'm not a big fan, but makgeolli, it tastes like more of a milk drink, but there's no milk in it. And it's often also served in teapots. Yes. I don't know what the cultural significance is to that. So if anyone can tell me why it's served in teapots, I would love to learn the history. Email me at megzi at foodfuntravel.com so I can find out why makgeolli is served in giant teapots. But one of the other things they do, as well as serving it in teapots, they serve it with food. It's sort of common that you're expected to buy some sort of food. I mean, you don't absolutely have to, but if you're Korean, you definitely will buy food when you go to one of these makgeolli bars. Food and alcohol go side by side. They're hand in hand with any Korean cuisine. Yeah, even if you just go out to get chicken, and we'll talk about chicken in a bit. Oh, yeah, we will. still, if you're going out for a beer, you're probably going to buy some chicken on the side. That's how it works. You don't even have to eat all the food. It's more just of a cultural standard that you have to order some sort of food if you're going to sit there and drink a load of drinks. We've talked a lot about restaurant food. Let's talk just a little bit about some street food because in Seoul, there is definitely some street food going on. It is not crazy. It's not like everywhere like you'd get in some parts of Southeast Asia, Indonesia, etc. It is like a few stalls here and there. Maybe they just open later at night. Maybe they open for breakfast and do some little breakfast stuff. But what was one of your favorite little street food snacks? I really love the spicy rice cakes or spicy fish cakes. Mostly the rice cakes for me. The fish ones got a little bit too fishy. These uh, are the ones that are served in like a tomato sauce. So like a big stewy tomato sauce that has these ricey chunks. Exactly. Dense ricey chunks. Yeah, exactly. So it's called tiok boki. 
and I know I pronounced that wrong, I'm so sorry, uh, but these are long white cylinder shaped rice cakes or, you know, sort of made of like rice noodle, but they're really quite dense. I guess it would almost be like the gnocchi, the rice gnocchi of Korea. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's just really, really dense, but tasty. And you bite into it, and it sort of, it sort of comes apart in your mouth a little bit. So it's not really hard or anything. It, it's, it's soft. It's soft, and it uh, can be seasoned with either spicy chili paste, uh, or you can get it non-spicy, where it's mixed with a sort of a soy sauce-based sauce. Uh, and you will find these in street carts, or definitely all around Itawan and uh, other parts around Seoul as well. It's after a certain time of night, it's not hard to walk out on the street and find someone selling some tasty, uh, very local street food. Yeah, I would say maybe after dark. Once it hits dark, once it hits sort of after 8, 9 p.m., stuff appears. They won't be very busy at that time, but you're going to be able to pick up a big, delicious sort of snack for maybe $4 or something like that. So it's not that crazy cheap price. Korea is obviously nowhere near as cheap as some other countries in Asia, but they'll, they'll give you a solid portion of this stuff. All right, let's talk about chicken and beer. What's going on with this? Oh, my goodness. I fell in love with the fried chicken in Korea. Uh, they call it KFC, Korean Fried Chicken. <laughs> all, all rights reserved there. Trademark, yeah, exactly. trademark pending. Uh, and the interesting thing about this is it's either twice or three times fried. And the Korean people that we met swore black and blue that this made it healthier than your standard fried chicken. Why? They couldn't tell us. But <laughs> it's always good to make a claim with no justification and be like, it's just not? healthier. But sure, maybe it is. So this is very uh, different from the typical American fried chicken that you might be you know, well accustomed to. So it is fried two or three times, which makes the skin crunchier and then apparently less greasy. I guess maybe they're throwing it in much hotter oil, which if you did that with American fried chicken and you're only frying it once, then it would burn on the outside before the middle actually cooked. Whereas if you keep taking it out, let it cool, then the heat from the outside goes in to cook the chicken a bit more, and then in two or three times. Maybe that's what's going on. They also have a less coating that goes onto the chicken as well. So they just use spices, sugar, and salt, and they uh, rub that into the skin prior oh, to them frying it. And garlic. Let's not forget the garlic no, fried chicken. yeah, that's amazing. Probably one of the best fried chickens we had was garlic fried chicken. And um, we'll try and get the notes for that into the show notes so you can find out exactly where it was we had that. Uh, it was so much garlic. It was amazing. Delicious. And of course, Korean fried chicken, the KFC, goes perfectly with beer. It, it's hand in hand. You will go to places that it's just strictly, it's chicken and beer. It's pretty much it. Yeah. It's like all that's on the menu is various chicken things. Now, this whole concept of frying chicken is a very new thing that has been introduced to Korea. And it began with the Korean War when American troops were stationed in South Korea in the late 40s and early 50s. Before that, actually, Koreans traditionally steamed chicken and they used it for soups and broths and stuff like that. But then a whole bunch of guys came over, you know, from the South. They wanted to be having their soul food. They wanted their American fried chicken. And the Koreans caught on and went, hey, this is super tasty, but let's kind of make it our own thing. And this is where we have the good old KFC Korean fried chicken from. The combination of beer and chicken is very cheekily called chimaek, and it's a combination of the English word chicken and maikju, which is the Korean word for beer. There you go. Chicken beer. Chicken beer. Deep fried chicken. So don't worry if you're on a trip from the States and you're in Korea, you can still get deep fried chicken. And you it's know, amazing. It is very good. It's different, but I love it. 
One thing that you are going to be very surprised, and we were completely shocked to see on many of the shelves and in gift baskets and just menus, menus all over the Say town. What? Uh, a really, really popular dish that you will find in Seoul and around Korea is spam. Spam, 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 spam. Yeah, spam. It's a. It's the spam that you think it is. We're not joking here. It's uh, America's canned pork thing. I don't know how else you would describe it. It's uh, it's People some it. sort of pork-related product in a tin. It was never really popular in uh, Australia. I don't think it was in, in England either. But we it's... had it in England for a while. We had it, it was like a wartime food during the Second World War. My grandmother would have eaten it. Actually, this is something my dad would have eaten. There we go. He's definitely had spam. I've had spam. Uh, you've probably had spam if you're from the US or the UK. It, I mean, I don't know. It's not really ham, is it? it I, I don't know what it is. I don't know. But I, I don't um, know. South Korea is the second biggest market for spam in the world after the United States. Damn. And absolutely, their love affair with spam is no joke at all. They take their spam very seriously. Of course. And actually, the winter equinox, which is at the end of September, is the perfect time to give your family the gift of spam. And this is a real thing. We are not joking. Oh, we, we saw it. We yeah. were there in September. So we actually saw all of these gift packs, fancy gift packs. Ornately decorated in cellophane and big bows and ribbons. Oh, and hay. Like, oh, you know yeah, how like a fancy hay. gift basket where you have hay underneath all your little With artists and products? different levels of spam. Yep, you can get your regular spam and then you can get your super fancy spam and people are paying like $75 or more for a gift set to take to their family full of spam. It is an incredible gift to give at this time of year and an incredible gift to receive. Only in Korea. Yes, but spam was introduced to Korea by the US Army, of course, during the Korean War once again. Food was scarce and meat was even scarcer. But back then, people just used whatever they could find to make a meal. Because, of course... The only real access they had to meet during that war, because there was loads of stuff going on and the whole farming industry was basically crushed during that time, was meat that had been smuggled in by U.S. soldiers. And this was mainly spam, dirty tin sausages, and occasionally some turkey meat as well. So spam was like this meaty beacon of freedom during this horribly bleak period in Korean history. It was used to make this spicy soup called budai jigai, which I also pronounced incorrectly, and that's just translated as army stew. So they would throw everything into this, whatever they would get, they could get their hands on. They throw like instant noodles in there, any sort of vegetables they got left over. It's like spicy with some chili, maybe some tomato type sauce, whatever they've got. Anything yeah. they've got in the kitchen, they're throwing it in. But the meat they were throwing in was mainly spam and tinned sausages. And this dish was supposedly invented in 1954. Yeah, and surprisingly enough, it was a dish that came out of hardship caused by war, but it has persisted long after the conflict has ended. People are and still eating spam. Still today. Like, it's served in many restaurants, quite often near to where the U.S. barracks is in well, Seoul. actually now at a point where it's not just the ones near the U.S. barracks. There are lots of restaurants. Uh, we even found a restaurant in Gangnam called Daewoo Skidang Restaurant. Gangnam Style. It's near the Gangnam Style place as uh, a little bit up the road from there and they are serving this so this sort of spicy sauce filled with spam and instant noodles and whatever else they can throw in it's happening people are loving it yeah. it's really popular around the city and actually we've had a few expats that have lived in korea that have recommended it to us as well it is a dish that should be tried so there we go spam 
the fusion food of the future and the past that still persists in South Korea. We I feel talked- a little sad ending the episode on spam. <laughs> so many good Korean foods and we ended on spam. Well, some would say this is a good Korean food that is very you know, specific to Korean culture and the history of South Korea and what's happened there. It's fusion. Maybe we'll do a full episode on spam one day because it's really popular in Hawaii as well. Strange. Yeah, there we go. There's a future episode. Or not. But for now, that is it for Seoul and some of our favorite random South Korean foods. As always, make sure you head to our show notes. We will have links there with some pictures of what we've eaten, what we've discussed, and also uh, links to our favorite places of where to eat some of these fabulous Korean dishes in Seoul. Head to foodfuntravel.com slash Seoul podcast. So until next time, where there'll be more food on the dish, keep eating. Before we finish the show, we just wanted to mention that you can help us keep this show going and help us make more episodes by becoming a patron. Head to foodfuntravel.com slash extras and find out a little more about the benefits of becoming a patron of the show. Uh, You'll get bonus episodes, early access to new episodes, even ones from upcoming seasons, and more. For just a couple of bucks a month, you can really help support this show and allow us the opportunity to commit more time to making new episodes. Yes, so go to foodfuntravel.com slash extras for more information and uh, to sign up and become a patron thank you thanks for listening to the dish don't forget to subscribe and keep this podcast on the air by giving us a five-star review on itunes or wherever you listen also come join our foodie community on facebook in the food worth traveling for facebook group catch you next time